by the way, I would also like to volunteer as a comment that I am very pro prosecution for the fakers. They make it way harder for the rest of us who are doing this legitimately. We get lumped in with them all the time and it's yeah. unfair. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak, they talk to you, they will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Psilocybin Says with Eric Osborne and myself, Courtney Rose. Here on Psilocybin Says, we explore the influence that psilocybin mushrooms have on social and individual development. We cover topics that impact individuals and society at large and interview guests from all walks of life who've been influenced by psilocybin mushrooms. If you're a regular listener of our shows, first and foremost, thank you for tuning in. Without you, we could not and would not be recording these shows that we enjoy doing so much every week. Secondly, if you're a regular listener, you'll likely have been a little surprised hearing my voice first thing on the episode today, and you might be wondering why Eric isn't here warming you up for the episode to come. I've got to take this opportunity to express how much I love that man. He's always encouraging me to push my boundaries a little bit and sometimes a lot a bit (laughs) and sees the best in me even when I don't. Which brings me here with you now. He thought our listeners would like to experience my style of titillating your senses all the way into this interview with two of our favorite psychedelic attorneys, Greg Lake of Entheo Connect and Gary Smith of Psychedelic Alex. A quick question for you. In your relationships, are you usually the risk taker or the risk assessor? The one that blindly takes the leap most of the time or the one that's weighing the pros and cons most of the time? Well, in my relationship with Eric, I am definitely the one with a history of asking all of the what if it doesn't work out though questions. You know the ones. What if somebody trips and falls? What if people don't like it? What if this one thing happens that's never happened before but maybe it will probably possibly happen to us? Yeah, that's me. And this personality trait did not come out of nowhere. It was well ingrained in me from the time I was born. I grew up with two attorneys whose full-time jobs were all about assessing and mitigating risk or repairing damages of unpredicted or unprecedented events. And you all, attorneys love to debate and it generally does not stay at the office They bring that love for argument all the way home. I couldn't even try to count how many people asked me growing up if I wanted to be an attorney. And let me tell you what, I hated that question because as much as I love my amazing parents and they really truly are extraordinary individuals, I thought I might spend the rest of my life trying to figure out 
how to not be so wrapped up in the what if worst case scenario types of questions. So alas, here I am, a founder of a psychedelic psilocybin church. I guess you could say that this is my way of teaching myself pronoia, the belief that the universe is conspiring in my favor after all. And listen, at this point in my journey of pronoia, I have learned the hard way, which you all can hear all about the story of Eric and I's arrest in our epic four hour long first episode of Psilocybin Says, highly recommend it. I've learned that one of the biggest parts of knowing and trusting that everything is working out is being aware of who is available to help and actually accepting that help. So this is where attorneys like Greg and Gary enter as true angels into our faith-based community of spiritual practice with sacred mushrooms. I have been looking forward to this episode dropping for weeks now, you all. Having people like these in Eric and I's lives help my risk-assessing parents relax a little more when it comes to the work that I do. These guys know their stuff. Greg Lake is a trial and appellate attorney, entheogenic church consultant, author of the Psychedelics in Mental Health series, and co-founder of EntheoConnect.com. His most recent book, The Law of Entheogenic Churches, Uh, the second volume, The Definition of Religion Under the First Amendment, is a deep dive into the definition of religion under the First Amendment in light of the sacramental consumption of entheogens, the nature of the primary religious and mystical experience effectuated through the sacramental consumption of entheogens, and the ever-developing historical record evidencing worldwide use of these sacraments in ancient times. It's available on a free or donation-only basis on entheoconnect.com. Gary Smith is a veteran cannabis attorney and general counsel to the nation's oldest non-Native American peyote church, the Peyote Way Church of God. His book, Psychedelic Alex, is a usable text on the laws governing psychedelics and entheogens. Its chapters cover international drug laws and treaties, the Controlled Substances Act, the Pure Food and Drug Act, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, the Federal Analog Act, Preemption Doctrine, IRS Code 280E, First Amendment, Bankruptcy, Clinical Trials, Lobbying and Public Initiatives, and much, much more, all given in context to history, archaeology, anthropology, biology, and religion, and spirituality. Yeah, would highly recommend both of those gentlemen's books. And if you've been wondering if you should start a plant medicine church of your own, this episode should give you a little taste of what that might begin to entail. So without further ado, I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you like this intro, please make sure to go ahead and give this episode a like to help reaffirm me in taking a leap and pushing my boundaries and switching it up today doing this intro. And if you're watching and listening on YouTube, remember to subscribe to our channel and press that little bell to be notified of new episodes as they come out every week. I cannot wait to hear your all's comments and questions after you give this one a listen. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Civil Seven Says. 
Uh, we've got two very special guests with us today. We've got Greg Lake and Gary Smith, both psychedelic attorneys. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Welcome, you all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. For full disclosure, Greg Lake is our attorney at Sanctuary. We've had a bit of a working relationship with Greg, and he's been uh, helping us work through the ins and outs of psychedelic law. And Gary, you may know, has a YouTube channel called Psychedelic Lex, where he explores psychedelics and the law in depth and some very, very interesting topics over there so please go check that out besides that maybe if we'd start with we'll start with you gary if you'd like to give a little bit of an introduction about yourself tell our listeners a little bit more of who you are and how you got into psychedelic law sure sure so uh i am indeed gary smith i am oh golly uh, closing in on 30 years of a law practice i practice out of phoenix arizona uh i'm a founder of the law firm guidant law firm my main practice area is litigation and over the last 30 years i've had a number of big buckets underneath that big umbrella one of those buckets over the last 12 years has been medical and now recreational marijuana here in arizona and that's really how i got my start in the whole psychedelics universe was roughly 12 years ago arizona started its flirtation again with medical marijuana and there were not very many lawyers who wanted to do it or thought that the law would actually pass or even if it did they didn't want to practice it but i looked at the question and thought that looks fun and exciting to me so i jumped in with both feet about 12 years ago and i've been just absolutely in the thick of it ever since along the way i am one of the co-founders of the arizona cannabis bar association i'm also now it's a two-term president uh, and indeed we are presenting at the arizona bar convention for the fifth year in a row in june uh, along the way, I have also become a founding board member of the Arizona Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. You also alluded to my podcast, Psychedelic Alex, and that came about really because of a book I authored about two years ago of the same name, Psychedelic Alex, which I believe I can take credit for writing the nation's first sort of comprehensive legal treatise on the question of the legality of psychedelics. And the story behind that was very simple. I went looking for the book uh, and I couldn't find it. So I said, fine, there's a hole here, let me fill it. So I, I took responsibility to write that book. And I ended up publishing it right when pandemic was getting started. And I had these grandiose visions of taking the book on tour to help promote it and to promote what I'm trying to accomplish here. Uh, pandemic struck, so fine. I, I found myself trapped at home for two years. So idle hands being the devil's tools, I created an entire podcast studio here at home, taught myself how to use it all, and thus the Psychedelic Alex podcast was born. So, And you've just recently published a new book, haven't you? Oh, God bless you for allowing me the shameless plug. I did. It happened <laughs> right here. How convenient. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. It's, it's got little factoids in it about all of Arizona's various connections to psychedelics. And when I wrote Psychedelic Alex, I had some leftover stuff that was just sitting around that I wanted to put to productive use. And that was the impetus for the book. And it caused me to do some more research. And man, I was shocked. Arizona really does have some pretty intense and broad connections to psychedelics. It was really fantastically fun to find out this stuff. And I'm happy to share it. So... Uh, and I, I will also say, I just worked an arrangement with the uh, Peyote Way Church of God here in Arizona. They have provided me just a couple of days ago with a bunch of 
of their archival photos. So I'm going to be doing a, a revision to this book. And yes, Greg, I will send you a copy <laughs> because there's going to be a new additional chapter in the book in a couple of weeks. That's going to be these archival photos. And by the way, the joke about this is uh, Greg and I co-presented in Miami back uh, in, in December, and I had the original first print copy and I, I gifted it to Greg. So he had yeah, got it. Yep. This book. So you'll Great get man. copy number one of the new one too, buddy. And I still owe you one of my new one too. I've got an extra one. I'll put it in the mail this week. Ah, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Wow. I wish we had a book to mail you. I know, <laughs> right? We've got to get on that. <laughs> we'll yeah. get there. Yeah, in time. Well, you've got stuff on the bookshelf behind you. Anything worth reading? <laughs> We're actually in Courtney's father's uh, office. My dad uh, is, is uh, an attorney uh, mm -hmm. as well. And this is his bookshelf, which I so lovingly organized for him. Um, yeah. A few months ago, he's got a lot of James Burke, Burke or Berkey, Michael Connolly. A lot of crime. He's fiction. a crime fiction writer, so ah, yeah. There's some stuff on there I bet I don't read. <laughs> yeah, and Greg, as he mentioned, is also an author. Greg, why don't you give our listeners a bit of a rundown of your background, that brings up speed. Yeah, so I'm an attorney, uh, originally licensed in Texas, now also licensed in Louisiana, practicing since roughly 2012, uh, just about 10 years, starting in June. Um, but uh, yeah, so my foray kind of began in 2019, and it's surprisingly enough, I had a mystical experience, which kind of led me to publishing my first book, uh, which I published right around the time Gary published his, and that's how we met, uh, June 2020 called Psychedelics and Mental Health Series Psilocybin, which was basically a place, which is a compilation of all the mental health research related to psilocybin that had been done up through February 2020. So it was fairly current at the time. Obviously, it's progressed a little bit since then. But uh, yeah, it's a compilation of all the research with some commentary uh, and things of that nature. Um, but soon, almost within a week after publishing that book, I was approached by people locally in Louisiana about the prospects of opening a psychedelic church. And so that began my foray into the psychedelic church scene, the religious exemption where I, most of my work is today. Um, so through that process, I ended up publishing my second book, I believe in February, 2021, which is the law of entheogenic churches in the United States, which is basically a, a, a short hundred page foundational text of the law regarding the federal religious exemption as it relates to the sacramental consumption of entheogens. Fast forward a bunch of projects later, I published my third book, which came out maybe five, six months ago. It's The Law of Entheogenic Churches, Volume 2, The Definition of Religion Under the First Amendment, which is a deep dive into the definition of religion as it relates to the sacramental consumption of entheogens, kind of taking in the research, the history, kind of seeing what that means in terms of how we define religion under the First Amendment. So that's my foray into here. And again, I do specialize in the religious exemption, but I'm, I'm fascinated in all, all areas of psychedelic law. I've spoken with both of you separately, and something that each of you said is that you both come at this from a little bit different perspectives. Um, I think Gary suggested he may be a little more conservative in his approach, and, and Greg is a little more pushes the boundaries, which I tend to identify with as well. So I thought it'd be fun if, you know, a big part of this conversation would allow you all to explore kind of the similarities and differences between your perspectives around psychedelic law, particularly in the church. You know, uh, I think, Gary, you probably know that we have a civil seven church that Greg helped us uh, put together. It's sanctuary. 
with a P. Courtney and I, it's been our spiritual practice for, well, we met in 2012, no, 2013. You know, I've been working with psilocybin religiously since 2009, at least, really. It really is more like 2000. Uh, but in 2009, I really took this up as my devout spiritual practice. Courtney had been having her own kind of shorter term practice before we met. Yeah. Well, yeah. When we met, that was really when I was diving into the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. of communing mm-hmm. with mushrooms. So maybe if you all could talk a little bit about, first and foremost, the RFRA and what this really means to psychedelic practitioners. Greg, you want to take point or you want me to? Oh yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and lead us. Yeah. So when we talk about the RFRA, which is the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, well, let me back up just a little bit. Religious protections, they they flow from two areas, both federal and state law. Now, the Federal Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which was enacted in response to a case out of Oregon, in which the Oregon Supreme Court denied a man unemployment benefits due to his sacramental consumption of peyote, right? And what it basically said is that laws of general applicability, in this case, the workers' comp laws, but in, for our purposes, the Controlled Substances Act applies to everyone equally. It's a general law, right? It's not targeted at religion. And that if those kind of laws incidentally burden religion, well, then it's constitutional. Now, this went to the U.S. Supreme Court where this decision was upheld. Now, mind you, at the time, existing Supreme Court president was exactly the opposite of that, in that you know, the, the holdings at that time were that general laws that incidentally burden religion are constitutional only if they serve a compelling governmental interest. Now, Congress was very offended at this decision. And uh, I think within two years, it was in 1993 in a large bipartisan bill. I think one of the largest bipartisan support bills in the history of Congress uh, passed the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And in that bill, they specifically named the Smith case say this is not good, this is not what, what was intended, and reverted back to the prior precedent, right? And then they go and just name what the test is, and it's basically this. As a claim or defense, a sincere religious practitioner is exempt from general laws, again, unless the, the government can show a compelling governmental interest. So then in 1997, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that this law did not apply to the states. So what we saw then was, I want to say about 21 states, maybe 22 states to date, have enacted their own Religious Freedom and Restoration Act legislation. Some mirror, some are different in wording and and form than the federal, but it's kind of on the same intent. Now, there, there are certain state constitutions which have been held since then to require the exact same analysis, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. So they already had good protection that had that same standard. And so when we talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you know, we we talk about federal, we talk about state ones, right? But for the most part, general reference, we're talking about uh, the federal act. Do the state RFRAs vary significantly from the federal? You know, there's some with with very strong language. I would say that they're either commensurate or some strong, but yeah, the wording and form varies state by state. But the, the overall, I would say, intent and drive of it are, are pretty much the same, other than there are some states that seemingly, when you read the statute, use much stronger language, which you can infer somewhat stronger protections, in my opinion. Okay. Hmm, I'm curious about what states those are. To date, I can tell you two for sure. I, and as a matter of fact, it was just the other day I read the Kansas Act. 
and it, it, in my opinion, has the strongest language that I've read yet. Um, and then Tennessee is another one that I've read that was fairly strong language, and that I could go into the nuances. But yeah, it, it has was they already built in what the Supreme Court decided, I think, in 2020 in Tanzan, that you know religious practitioners can personally sue a government agent for for monetary damages that substantially burden their religion. Tennessee and Kansas have had that already written into theirs. We made that clear in our statement on the website that anybody comes after us, they're going to be responsible for legal fees if we win. So that's worth a little emphasis, by the way. I'm really glad Craig brought up Tanzan. Most people don't know about it, so it's it's worth spending a minute. I, Supreme Court case from 2020, and up until that point, all the way back to, I think, 93, when RIFRA passed under the, the Clinton administration, there was not this general understood notion that private individuals would have direct cause of action against the government actors who were infringing mm. religious freedom. So what Tanzan clarified wasn't that they were now creating this new cause of action. Rather, they were clarifying it was always there. Mm -hmm. So if your religious rights are being infringed by a government agent, you literally have the right not only to sue that agency for the infringement, but the literal agent who's doing it. Oh, wow. So, Did so not what, know that. Think of this in scope of if you're uh, like a DEA agent, for example, even a well-paid DEA agent is pulling a paycheck like anybody else. So if they're making maybe, maybe 100000 a year, if you're a really high-level DEA uh, field agent, probably less than that, honestly. Imagine having to face down such a lawsuit. Okay, so how often has that happened where someone has sued the actual agent? To my knowledge, I haven't seen one yet, but uh, understand, unless it gets picked up by a news agency, you wouldn't necessarily know unless mm -hmm. it an appeal because if it goes to an appeal that becomes a publicly reported decision in many instances but uh, mm. i haven't had a single one yet you greg have you no no other than tanzan and just wanted to highlight real quick you know the damages in tanzan uh, i believe it was a muslim man who was wrongfully put on the no-fly list because he would not roll over or rat on some of his co-religionists right and in, for damages, he basically claimed that he lost money and business opportunities and stuff like that, that he was able to then personally seek uh, from the government agent. And so when we talk about it kind of in this space, and I'll ask Gary if he agrees, but like when I think about SoulQuest, it pulls in quite a bit of money from what we understand, right? And so who's going to be the DEA agent to go in there and shut them down, right? Who, it would bankrupt them if it later was found that, if it later is found, uh, that soul quest is exempt i mean the judgment would be probably too much for an agent to bear yeah hmm. oh, oh for sure and and yes i agree with all of that um yeah the thing of it though is this is not a bad thing this is actually a really good thing because it, it forces police agencies to slow down a little bit hmm. and not be reactionary you, you know you're you're not as a police agency you're supposed to just be jumping on anything that moves you're supposed to have a reason for doing what you do and the nice thing under RIFRA is, yeah, if you're a police agency or, or a police officer and you're sloppy and you don't want to take people's constitutional rights seriously as you're evaluating the evidence in front of you and making a decision on whether you're going to go in and take an action, yeah, there's a consequence for that, as there should be. Absolutely. No, it's Absolutely. That's no difference than your surgeon not really being up to speed on the surgery they're about to do on you. <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, uh, that's bleeding. How do we deal with that again? Yeah, that's it's the same concept. But yeah, the Thompson case had nothing to do about psychedelics, but everything to do with with, with religious freedom and the implications of reference. Uh, I definitely want to get into the Soul Quest thing that's going on. But I would love it if maybe Gary, you could extract expand a little bit more on what constitutes a compelling interest. That seems like such a vague term. <laughs> okay, so. The way I typically describe this, I use the analogy of continents that are, are floating on the surface of the earth and they bang into each other once in a while. And we've got two main continents here. One continent is your, your First Amendment rights, your, your religious freedom rights. The other continent is the government's general rights and, and really, I would even argue, obligation to maintain public safety. And the way in this realm of psychedelics, that manifests are the drug laws. And, and thus we have Controlled Substances Act, things are scheduled. And the government has over time made many compelling arguments successfully that drug laws are necessary and scheduling is necessary and keeping things in a certain well-ordered universe for drugs are necessary. Now we may individually disagree on whether things properly belong on schedule one. So for example, psilocybin schedule one, cocaine, Schedule two, figure that one out. I don't know. So, you know, we can all comfortably have disagreements over that, but <laughs> literally zero role over some regulation of drug, you're going to lose that argument in court. So these are the two continents floating around that bang into each other. So here's what happens. Under RIFRA, you're presumed to have these religious rights and, and freedoms to express and, and engage, particularly with psychedelics on this topic we're talking about. But the government's argument is, hey, we've got this compelling interest for a well-regulated and well-organized drug system, and this system says Schedule One things are not permitted. So now we're banging these two things that don't fit together into each other, and they cause little mountains, right? That's what happens when continents hit each other. There's either mountains or subduction zones. By the way, we're getting a geology lesson here, too, for the bonus. <laughs> so, that's where this compelling interest argument comes into place. So what the government says is, hey, the law allows us, the government, to regulate in a general fashion. We can never pick on a particular religion. We can't, you know, outlaw Catholicism today. That would be per se struck down before it even hit the courtroom. But we have these general laws that apply to everybody evenly. We're generally allowed to apply them to everybody evenly. Uh-oh, so what do you do when you've got this religious freedom that says some psychedelics are okay, and you've got this law that says, well, no, not really. So the government argues we've got a compelling interest, but now you as the religion have the counter-argument to make, which is, well, is your method of enforcing that compelling interest uh, the least restrictive means, or, or is there at least some avenue by which I can be exempt from that application? And we've got examples of this already, courtesy of the ayahuasca cases. So... There is a carve out that's perfectly okay, perfectly legal, perfectly First Amendment compliant, but it's trying to get new religions into that framework or trying to get new expressions of religion into that framework, which is where the work has yet to be done because those cases are unicorns. They're few and far between for all the obvious reasons and also a bunch of not so obvious reasons. So is it going to take multiple churches going to court before this becomes accepted? It could. I mean, honestly, more cases, and understand, it, you don't want to be in one of those cases because it no, means you're, no. you're paying no. a lot of money to people to hopefully get you out of trouble. Because if you're in one of those cases, guess what? 
you're probably in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, so you don't want to be that guy. But we do need those cases because without them, how do we get appellate decisions that become binding throughout the various jurisdictions? The only mm -hmm. other path is through legislation. And uh, that would be my preferred path because then nobody gets in trouble. Uh, and it's also something that comes about through more involvement of a bigger slice of the community. But yeah, one good case could make a massive difference nationally. We're always on the lookout for it. And I was going to add one thing too about the compelling governmental interest analysis, kind of specifically, again, as it relates to Controlled Substance Act, is that the, the courts look at safety whatever what the kind of safety risk involved with the particular practice at issue, uh, but they also look at diversion risk. How are the substances being handled, stored, recorded? But again, but the least restrictive means is, is again, the third part that we talk about. Is this the least restrictive way to allow these people to, to practice their religion or do we just completely shut them off? So Gary, I was watching your YouTube channel earlier and your most recent, I think it was your most recent video called yeah. Psychedelic inbox cleanup oh and, yeah i'm gonna record one of those this weekend it's that's gonna be yeah, a I thing and keep up with the mail so which you anyway. incidentally shouted out one of our uh church members and ministers in training at the beginning of the video yeah he subscribed recently and you gave him a shout out which was cool i sent him the link and he was like oh my gosh I'm yeah. honestly I, I am really going to be doing that more frequently for everybody to understand, I, I subscribe to as many different online newsletters as I can. That's one of my ways of keeping on top of things. But there are just not enough hours in the day. So this stuff just accumulates in my inbox. So probably once a month, because that's about as much time as I can get to do this, I'm going to do it. I'll go through my inbox and I'll sit there with my coffee on a Sunday morning and I'll tell you what's in my inbox. And it'll be sort of like an encapsulated quick, this is what's in the news. And yes, any of the people who subscribe to the show or send me comments or questions, absolutely. I'm happy to give you a shout out because it's my way of at least expressing thank you to the people who are paying attention to me. And I'm grateful for that. I really am grateful for that. I love that. We'll have to comment more then. Um, but in there, uh, in that video, you mention um, a, uh, let's see, a synagogue in Colorado that was oh, recently yeah. raided by the DEA. And yeah. we chatted about this a little bit with Greg before you hopped on and we started recording. But um, I'm curious on your take on that. Like what what happened there? Candidly, I only know what's been in the news. The, the, the short version of what I know. And by the way, I could be completely wrong because I'm just reading it off the news. Uh, there's a rabbi in Colorado who decided to implement psilocybin as part of his synagogue services. He was. Uh, I think in conjunction with somebody else cultivating them and, and also issuing mushroom out to the congregation during service. I don't know exactly what got the police upset with him, but they got upset with him and raided and seized the mushrooms. And I, I guess people got charged. And that was about, oh golly, a month, two months ago, last I knew. I don't know what's happened since though. There was also the Zide door in, in Oakland that went through a raid and from the outside, we're not we're not seeing the mechanics of it all, but it seems like at least in the Oakland scenario, nothing has really come up. But that guy, David Hemp, is still operating and he's still very public with his church. Do either of you all know anything about how that? They're the ones who were taking credit for being like the first national psychedelic mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mushroom uh, church. Yeah, I, I remember. Oh, God, this goes back some months there. I remember reading about that, too. And I know the, the police had come in and raided. There were a bunch of uh, safes in a room that they were cutting open and they found uh, 
I think hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash, bunches of mushrooms, bunches of cannabis. And I think they also said that they had started out initially as a cannabis church, but then introduced psilocybin into the mix later. And I think yeah, that's and this guy, you know, he's where he's wearing papal robes covered in ganja leaves. Yeah. And yeah. I, and, and that's, that's, it's interesting. You said that, you know, in a lot of court cases, I've heard them note mocking established religions does not earn you brownie points um, <laughs> or religious defense. It doesn't. And, you know, it, to me, when I read the facts that again, we're reporting the news, I don't know any like big details, but it seemed pretty obvious that it was more or less a ruse to try and hide or protect hand-to-hand transactions. Mm-hmm. Just my take of it. I don't know if that's the truth, but I, I think from afar, what I read, that was my initial impression that this was just, you know, this thing about the religious laws aren't a loophole. You know what I mean? It's not a loophole. Right. And if you're right. given the impression that you're using it as a loophole, well, then you're going to be low-lying fruit, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's where I'd love to bring in the conversation, the, the topic of sincerity, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, that's huge in, in the defense, but what does that mean? And who is, who has the right to define sincerity? Yeah. Well, that is one of the query points a court would make if you were trying to mount a religious use defense. They, they will question things like, do you even know about the religion you're claiming to practice? Because if you can't tell them anything about the religion you're claiming to practice, it's going to be really hard for you to say that was the reason you had the thing you had and were doing mm-hmm. the thing you were doing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I would also like to volunteer as a comment that I am very pro-prosecution for the fakers mm-hmm. because yeah. they make it way harder for the rest of us who are doing this legitimately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get lumped in with them all the time, and it's yeah. unfair. So. Yes. I am 100% in favor of pointing out the bad apples and whatever happens to them, oh well. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like we were talking before the show, you know, with the sincerity, it's an inherently subjective analysis, right? You can't get in somebody's head and heart and see what they're truly convicted in. But, you know, again, I've I've heard the court note in a couple of cases that, you look, as long as there's really no indicia of inconsistent actions or thoughts, and like Gary says, you can actually elucidate these things on the stand, you should be good to go. But again, it's the government's going to try to point out any inconsistent action statement, anything you've ever made uh, to try to throw doubt on that. And then it's uh, really just up to the court to consider all the evidence and come to the conclusion, right? There's no hardline test as to what's sincere and what isn't, right? It's just kind of call it as you see it type thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like imagine somebody's claiming that they're an Orthodox Jew, but they're uncircumcised and munching down on bacon sandwiches <laughs> with their buddies yeah. downtown. Harder to prove you're an Orthodox Jew when that's kind of your profile. One of the things that I think about for myself, you know, this this has been very long my spiritual practice, but at the same time, I'm very playful about it. Right? It's I, I, part of my spirituality is to not take to try not to take life too seriously and that includes even my own personal practices it's one of the most profound lessons that i ever got from the mushroom you know as i was setting myself up with all this ceremonial hoopla and you know just all these all these things around me and i went in and did an eight gram dose and it just laid me out and was like look man you don't need all this shit. you don't need all this decoration you just need to approach this with sincerity, with a light heart, and open yourself up to the mystery. 
you know. So it's just it's just kind of an interesting point of topic. I was raised Catholic, so there was tons of ceremonialism around me. It, in a way, defined sincerity. I think on a a very far end of the spectrum because uh, I truly believe that you can be sincere in your practice, but also like make fun of yourself. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, you know, you look at the variety of religion in the world. I mean, some emphasize the joy of life and, and the carnal aspects and some are just completely opposed to anybody ever having a good time under any yeah. circumstance. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of the last Amish party you attended. <laughs> oh my God. I, I used to have, I had Amish working on my farm, my mushroom farm, boy, I can tell you some stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, break out for spring. I'm talking, you know, yeah, no, we, we shall not digress though. Um, <laughs> so, so just, if I could just real quick, this brings up two questions in my mind. One is the gray zone between recreational and sacramental use. I, I have had, and many people, perhaps even yourselves, have had powerful spiritual experiences consuming a sacrament in a festival scene or in a just more laid back kind of scenario. I wonder what kind of conflict there is there, or is there enough crossover there that, that we can talk about this seriously? Does that make sense what I'm asking, what I'm bringing Yeah, up? yeah, I got, I got a quick comment on that. And, and you know, again, it, it, the research has noted since the beginning that these things in the right set and setting can effectuate primary religious experiences, right? And so I think what you're getting at is like, where's the separation between protected religious use and recreational use? And look, this is just my view. If I were a judge, I would look at the ceremony and ritual, right? So like if I get the feel from what a group ceremonies and rituals are, is that their intent is to try to effectuate those types of experiences through whatever formalities and rituals they follow fine versus just haphazardly showing up, eating mushrooms and do as you please. Right. Just my breakdown of the situation. If I were sitting on the bench, that would be my analysis of the situation. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So then the yeah, other, other day I, I read, they did a study, you know, they were saying that kids at these electronic music festivals are having religious experiences on MDMA. And, and I, I went like to, you know, I was at one of the most horrible redneck concerts ever. And I, and I took some mushrooms. This was years and years and years ago, like 2015. And I, I took some mushrooms at this concert and I had one of the most powerful spiritual experiences really seeing the beauty in all mankind. I mean, I would have, this, this was a, a group of people that I never would have really chosen to be around a friend of mine who was ironically an attorney drugged me to this concert and it became the most, one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. So, you know, it, it is, I think there is a really a, a gray zone here, but it's not one that I'm, I'm not trying to push with sanctuary. It's just kind of ideologically exploring that. You look like you want to say something, Gary? Yeah. You know, I actually have a true story. That's kind of a little on point. The, the founder of the Peyote Way Church of God, Emmanuel Trujillo, he many, many years back, obviously before he died, he was arrested in southern Arizona and found in possession of peyote. He got pulled over for something, I think, a driving infraction. And when he reached into his pocket to pull something out, a peyote button fell out. And the officer saw it, made an issue of it. And he, he Manuel picked up the peyote button and ate it. <laughs> oh, wow. 
stated on the spot saying he was okay. this was the equivalent of like when a, a catholic priest would uh drop or or damage a community uh, uh -huh. but he got charged un unsurprisingly got charged mm -hmm. uh acquitted at trial went to trial and got a full acquittal for it because he explained mm -hmm. to the court that he was involved in the church this was a sacrament he was a true believer and, and this was a genuine practice but at the time he was consuming that particular peyote button, he was just driving somewhere. Yeah. It wasn't you know, at a religious event or wasn't intended to be a religious event. It became one. So, mm. yeah, there are real life examples of this. What happens to everybody in each instance depends mm -hmm. where you live, depends who you are. A personal note, I struggle to eat mushrooms at concerts. <laughs> I'm more of a purist. <laughs> yeah, well, for the kids at home, might be brand new to all of this. Here's what you mostly need to know. All of these things taste horrendous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which you are and you're eating it, you're not enjoying it. <laughs> which, which also, too, can factor into a court's analysis. You know, like in the Santa Dami EDV cases, the court notes that this thing causes purging, tastes terrible. You know, basically, it's not something traditionally that people just chomp down mm. recreationally right now. We do know mushrooms, some of these other things people do, but it's still, it's a consideration to make that. This isn't something a, a five-year-old kid's going to munch on and enjoy it and love it. And, and mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, it, it does. That, that, that has been noted before. Can we go into the soul quest? And I'm wondering if, if the sincerity test is what has been the been problematic for them and i know there's a whole lot going on in that case and gary did a really wonderful job in two different videos breaking down what they were doing and what was problematic and where it's all at now but for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that if we can just kind of talk about that in terms of sincerity because where we courtney and i you know we both i don't know if you know this gary we started a wellness retreat center in jamaica michael meditations years ago that was our first kind of public public foray into psilocybin. It never, it never really sat right with us that it was being presented solely as a therapeutic endeavor because spirituality is such an intimate part of our working with the mushroom. And we didn't feel like we were able to really express that openly enough to our clients that we worked with there. And it's a big part of why we came back to, to Kentucky and started Sanctuary. But this this kind of gray zone between therapeutic organizations and religious organizations is well worth exploring here. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, really what you're describing is just the current cultural norm of insisting that medicine and religion are all separate things. Yeah. yeah. That mental health is a separate thing and physical health is a separate thing and everybody should have them in different boxes and they shouldn't touch and there's no interaction or overlap in any of them. When the reality is all the way back to the origin of religion through really almost up until about a hundred years ago, religion and medicine were one and the same. Yes. And, and even today, you know, you watch these late night commercials on TV. What are those preachers talking about? Getting healed, right? Well, what the heck mm. do you think they're healing? Unfortunately, it's a cultural problem. We just, in, in this modern age, just lost the sense that these things are blended. So that's what you're fighting against. Mm -hmm. It's an achievable fight, but it's what you are fighting against through those currents. Yeah, I, I agree with Gary 100%. And like I said, when we look at like the ancient shamanic traditions, you know, a shaman in the jungle of South America is really a medicine man and a religious leader all in one, right? And I'll say this too, is that, you know, as far as these substances, at least as it relates to mental health being healing, 
has absolutely been established in 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 the the literature right and so it's not far-fetched and, and so what why would it be a crime or against the religious laws to be able to go to a religious ceremony and also receive healing you know mm-hmm. i agree it's a cultural thing people have this box medical religion and traditionally the, the lines aren't that clear and i hope that we as a society kind of go back towards that understanding of it the fact that the mystical experience is t- so intimately tied to the healing outcomes seems like a bridge for us in the scientific world we spoke with a, a wonderful medical doctor uh erica zelfand who suggested that psychedelics will be what puts the spirit or the soul back into medicine uh, and, and, and bridges this gap. But with SoulQuest, is that really the, the main issue at play there, that they, their, their sincerity is in question? Or? Yeah, it's a, one, of a, one of a list of items. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. If, if uh, anybody hasn't taken the time to do this and you're curious about this topic, honestly, go grab, and you'll find it online. Just do a Google search. You'll find it. But go grab the DEA SoulQuest exemption denial letter. It's mm-hmm. pages and pages and pages of the DEA explaining from their perspective why they were not inclined to allow SoulQuest the exemption that SoulQuest sought. Now, now mind you, DEA at least at the time it openly advertised if you wanted the exemption they invited you to apply and they gave you a handy form where you could list all of your alleged felonies and sign your yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful opportunity thank you officer you, you can probably guess i have never counseled anyone ever to fill in the exemption request yeah. Here's yeah, the, yeah. if you really look at the law the dea has no business asking anybody to explain themselves up front let alone having this exemption form because they're not really equipped for it but yeah you go to the letter and it just goes on for pages and it's lists of issues ranging from the varieties all over the board Uh, the dea basically concludes that soul quest is a for-profit business that sells alternative wellness i mean that's what effectively what they came up with and they were calling the people who attend soul quest customers uh Mm -hmm. they literally use the word customers it's kind of everything. You know, SoulQuest, according to the DEA's own letter, has written doctrine. It, it has restriction on access to medicine. It's got a hierarchy within its own structure. It's got programs for how they go about introducing people to the medicine. They have medical professionals who are available to administer to people during services. So if anything should go errant, people are well taken care of. But even with all of that, SoulQuest apparently had problems. I guess there were some people who were injured. I think SoulQuest got sued over it. And this is stuff DEA was pointing at uh, to determine Mm -hmm. what it ultimately determined. It's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't mind, there were were two two comments I wanted to make about, you know, one of the things the DEA said in there that really struck me is that people aren't sincere because when they come to your organization, they don't sign a paper saying that they believe what's in your statement of beliefs. Now here's my interpretation on that. Just knowing the nature of these religions and is this, is that drinking ayahuasca is a visionary religion, right? It's phenomenological, right? Because so if someone's never had the experience and I say that because the beliefs spruce from the experience, right? So if someone's never had the experience, 
to me, it would seem insincere to have them sign a document saying that they believe these things uh, mm -hmm. that, that quite possibly they could have never experienced. And two, here's my take on the death. And look at this. I'm, I, I hate that that happened. I really do. This is not to express any kind of bad or ill intent towards that. But to me, you know, for the for the DA to go in court and say, oh, there's a huge safety risk when they've allowed SoulQuest to openly operate since that death without any kind of interference, I think it's going to be kind of hard for them to backtrack on, right? Because, I mean, if I were a judge, I'd say, oh, really? Well, why didn't you shut them down in 2017 if there was such an extreme health risk, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a few things in there that I, that I like to kind of take issue with, but overall, I'll say this. The DEA did a pretty damn good job at painting the facts. And, you know, obviously they cherry pick stuff, you know, but they picked some some good cherry picks and put them together where, <laughs> you know, most lay readers are like, damn, this doesn't look good, you know? And uh, yeah, so, but that's that's where we are. And again, I, I still support SoulQuest and, and hope they win, but they, they kind of put themselves in a position really by applying for the DEA exemption, right? It's caused all kinds of problems for them. Uh, up until even today where they're at, where the district court said, you know, y'all got to follow with the 11th Circuit. You know, it all kind of stems from that initial, in my and probably Gary's opinion, poor decision to even reach out and try to work with the DEA. The other thing I wanted to say, too, which um, the comment Greg made made me think of this as well, is when you read through that, that DEA denial letter, uh, you may disagree, but I certainly got the, the vibe that DEA was approaching its analysis really from the perspective of the Judeo-Christian lineage. Yeah, They really don't seem to have any knowledge or experience with other methods of religious practice or belief systems. And I think they were expecting what everybody at DEA grew up with, what you and I grew up with, you know, the Judeo-Christian lineage, that there's a revelatory basis, there's a first person who gets a message, you know, radio signal from the cosmos and writes it down, and now we all follow these written rules. That's not what a lot of psychedelic religion looks like. So mm -hmm. when you walk into this with a set of metrics that don't even apply, of course the analysis is going to come out flawed. And remember, DEA is ultimately a law enforcement agency that's focused on drugs. Mm -hmm. They don't have staff people with theology degrees trying to study these esoteric issues. It's not what they're geared for. Uh, I don't blame them. It's just that they nonetheless step into this gulf thinking they're equipped when, again, no disrespect to the agency, they're really not. It creates a lot of interesting questions around what the future of this is going to look like. It, it seems to me that there will be a significant increase in psychedelic churches in the next five to 10 years. Oh yeah. And then are we going to create a, an agency to inspect the sincerity or to authorize these organizations? You know, we do not have a department of religions. Uh, so, yeah. so how are we going to work? And never with this? will. And never will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gary, and to be honest, Gary has the best solution I've ever heard to this issue, Gary, where you're talking about filling out the affidavits and stuff mm -hmm. in order yeah. you know, for the exemption process. If you want him for that's he's come up with the best solution that I've, oh, I've sure. heard. Yeah. Yeah. To explain it? Yeah. yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And, and thank you for that, Greg. That was very, yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah. So I'm looking at the conundrum of we actually needed. DEA. They perform a very important function, and part of it, weirdly enough, although they're a police agency, is really consumer protection. 
you know, because they do interdict at the border. They do interdict on things that are being imported. And look, you, me, Greg, everybody we know, none of us want to open a bottle of something that we think is X and it turns out it's Y. When I was a kid, I, I remember the big Tylenol scare. And you may, you may not know about this, but back in, oh golly, I think the late 70s or early 80s, this was before any of those safety seals were on any bottles anywhere. Once upon a time, bottles just had tops that came off and anybody could put their finger inside. And oh. back in New York, somebody did that. They went and grabbed a bunch of Tylenol bottles off the shelf of a pharmacy and slipped in a bunch of cyanide tablets. Oh, and uh, after a week or two of people dying from cyanide poisoning, they figured out what the source was. And that was the catalyst that changed packaging across the country forever. Wow. And that's why you see those, you know, blister packs and the stickers and the cotton balls and all that nonsense. So it's not that DEA is at that granular level, but that's the kind of stuff they do, which is why I say they're important. So now on this religious question and my, my crazy notion of, of the solution, DEA should, I think, have a role to play, but they overplay it right now. And that's why we see the cases from the ayahuasca churches and others. So the way I see this unfolding is DEA should ask at the point of importation, let's say you're, you're importing your mushrooms from out of the country. You've got to have a form to fill out to declare what you're doing. And the expectation is that customs and DEA would see that form and you'll have to legally declare what you're doing. And if you're acting as a responsible legal religion, you shouldn't have any hesitation. And at that point, you hand over the paperwork to DEA. You tell them, hey, we're a religious group. We're importing sacrament for our religion. That should be the end of your contact with DEA. You simply inform them what you're up to. And you should be able to pick up your package and go back to wherever you're from and do what you do. And at that point, DEA should then have a choice. They should say, either we believe this or we don't. If we believe it, great, we're done, everybody's fine. If we don't, then we as DEA have to take the next step, which is investigate. Don't stop the importation at that moment because you don't have a basis for it. You merely have a suspicion at best. And the deal is, if you get that little attestation at the border, Here's what you've done. You've created a pathway to where that stuff is going. And again, if you're a, a legit religion doing legit business, mm -hmm. it should never be a problem. It's the right. same concept as when physicians receive shipments of medication or pharmacies receive shipments of medication. It's all tracked. It's all mm -hmm. in databases and paperwork because it needs to be tracked and it's proper, it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal. If you're not sincere and you're not a real religion and you're just importing drugs, Shame on you, A, and B, you've got a paper trail now that the DEA can follow, and guess what? You've probably signed an attestation under oath, so now the DEA gets a free extra juice up in charging you if you lied, because they can charge you with perjury on the form. And that should be it. They can refer it off to a police agency if they want that police agency locally to investigate. They can do the investigation themselves. They can kick it uphill to their masters at the U.S. Department of Justice so they can go do the investigation. But if they don't have an actual basis to say this importation shouldn't happen, then they should allow it to happen. But under their current model, they stop it at the border and make you the party who has to prove that you've got a reason or a basis to take your importation and go home. And, and kind of what the effect of that is, is that in order to for sure practice your religion with 100% certainty, you've got to come up with a lot of money of legal fees and expenses and resources to do that, right? So, and I don't think that that's the kind of society or place that we want to live in, right? We want people to be able to practice, be safe, be comfortable. 
mm-hmm. on their own accord without having to spend them. You know, your religious rights dependent on 100K, right? And so uh, I agree with everything, Gary. So I think it's a great solution if we could ever, you know, get it get it pushed through. Yeah, yeah so and in term does a favor to the DEA because it lifts the burden of evaluating religion off of them because they shouldn't be doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. All you're giving yeah. people is a, under this theory, a form that says, I am a religious group. I am operating under first amendment, religious protections, period, sign it, hand it to them. That should be it. So in terms of cultivation, say for mushrooms, we, we work to very closely track all of our sacrament from whether it's wild harvested or whether it's cultivated. And then per gram, what goes out to every member. I'm wondering what that would look like, you know, because if you're talking about an importation, that creates kind of a wall that is an immediate, okay, here we are, we've got these folks, they've got this thing. But if someone is cultivating or or harvesting wild, it makes it a little bit more challenging maybe to monitor that. How do you see regulating that? Um, No, not really. No, not at all. Not at all. No. If you're producing yeah. domestically, look, you, you could declare yourself the DEA and actually get licensure for it. It's the same thing as any mm-hmm. pharmaceutical company going and declaring themselves and getting licensure to manufacture their pharmaceutical domestically. It's just it, that in this, in this instance, it's a different use. That's all. But it's similar mm-hmm. systems. Okay. And, okay. and one point I want to make that kind of goes to this least restrictive means compelling governmental interest is that I've spoken with the leader of an exempted church. And he literally goes online and fills out a form every quarter, hits send, and that's all the tracking that they do. You know, he just gives an accounting of, of the sacrament and hits send. So it's not like the government has to come out and, you know, do a full audit or anything like that. Apparently, they're accepting of a, just using a simple computer database and program to submit your stuff, right? So it, it's there's some ease in doing it. Are you all paying attention? I know you are, Greg, and I would assume you are, Gary, but what's going on in, in uh, Oregon and uh... – Oh, know, yeah. Some of the pre- precedents being set there. What are what are some of your thoughts? Because we, we've been involved in quite a few of the conversations with John Dennis. And if you're familiar with him, doing great work. Yeah, John's doing great work, man. He was on our show recently as well. Um, and it's uh it's it's a bit problematic to us how Oregon is really treating the religious right so similarly to the medical application. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, I'll say this. First off, John asked me to come comment. And uh, when I showed up there to comment, I got about a minute in and the girl cut me off. But, um, I know, you know, yeah, I saw that happen. I was like, that was not two minutes. Say, one thing I'll say about the benefit of allowing this religious exemption there or, you know, within their bill is, is, is equity and access, right? Because as we know, with all the licensure hoops and, and testing and requirements and all that, the treatments there are going to be super expensive and cut off access to a lot of lower income people where it can be shown that the, the prices and costs associated with attending a religious ceremony are much, much cheaper. Uh, and so it, on that basis alone, I mean, I think they should definitely give it consideration. And I mean, I hope they pass it. I, mean, I think it'd be a great addition. That's kind of the, the problem, though, is that even under the religious usage, they're still requiring testing. They're still requiring all of the same standards and specifications that yeah. are part of the medical. Yeah. I think what John proposed, though, is to actually do away with that. I was speaking in, in mm-hmm. what John was telling me as far mm-hmm. as what was being proposed. My impression right. was that to do away with these things and actually let those providers grow more than just Cubensis. 
Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think it so. doesn't seem like that's going to happen though, because this because yeah. 109 is so strict around what it allows and everything's having. And you may, maybe this is just kind of a stepping stone to get a foot in the door in Oregon where it can then evolve as time goes on. Um, but you know, as a, pra a religious practitioner and being involved in these conversations and hearing all the hoops that we because we we have a an entity set up with the state of Oregon in the hopes of, of establishing a sanctuary there. And the more we are engaged in these conversations, the more restrictive it feels on on us as a religious group. Yeah. Um, in my conversations with John, I know that part of what the push behind getting some religious recognition into that program was so that those religious groups could be a little bit liberated from some of the more strict requirements mm -hmm. that the psilocybin centers would be absolutely required to obey. I will say, though, the religion question up there, least of the worries, it's going to be the economics of this. Mm -hmm. I, I think that all the problems of getting funding, the implications of IRA Code Section 280, the difficulties getting insurance, the mm -hmm. requirement of having possibly multiple on-site monitors, uh, the economics are going to be just horrendous. I, I think a single visit for a psilocybin experience at one of these places legitimately clock in at a thousand dollars, possibly more. Oh, I'd say more than that, the way it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree, which, you know, that's again, that's not at least in, in our kind of belief and operation. That's, that's not what this medicine, that's not what this sacrament is about. You know, of course there are many, many hours associated with caretaking. And there's a lot of work that goes into a session, but the, the, the equal access and, and some of the people who I know we all know the people who would benefit from this the most are often those who can't afford those kinds of services. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's obviously too late. There's no way to go back and, and do this now, but I think what would have really helped is if the initiative that they passed Measure 109 had contained an additional term that granted immunity from civil suit for the mm. facilities that are providing these medicines mm. and all strictly just for the medicine itself. This mm. way, you don't have to worry about going and getting insurance that doesn't exist or if you can find yeah. them prohibitively expensive. And then you could just stick with the more basic readily available commercial general liability policies for just the business itself. So, you know, the, the policy that like somebody comes and slips and cracks their head open on your floor, mm -hmm. that policy. Mm -hmm. But the risk claims coming from the psilocybin use, yeah, those insurance policies, good luck finding them. And if they're required oh, yeah. to open your doors, you're never going to open your doors. And if you do, it's going to be mm -hmm. just prohibitive. So, yeah, if I had the chance to go in a time machine, go back and add one more term to that, that body of law, that would have been it. So do you think that the churches are going to effectively supplant the wellness organizations because of some of those limitations? Ooh, supplant, I don't know, but augment for sure. And here's the deal is that, and I tell people this all the time. There's a whole population that are only going to feel safe in a, and I'm going to say medical type, clinic type, you know, of, of setting versus in a religious ceremony with, with, you know, 10 other people, right? Some people prefer to be one-on-one -on -one with therapist type thing that's, that's mostly contemplated by 109. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that 
just like he augment, but it's not going to supplant. There's, there's just a lot of people out there that are only going to feel safe and comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one setting with, mm -hmm. with a facilitator. I suspect that will change as time goes on though. You know, yeah, a lot, a lot of people work, you know, Gary, so, you know, like for what it's worth, I've, I've sat with well over a thousand people. Each of those people did at least three doses. So I've sat for a lot of sessions and most of the people that I've worked with came to this from a kind of medical therapeutic standpoint. And I'd say probably nine out of 10 of the people who I've worked with that specifically wanted a private session after they did a, a dose or two of mushrooms, they, they could perceive the value of doing it within a group context. And I have seen so much more benefit come to individual healing by working with these medicine in a group medicines or sacraments in a group context. And so, you know, I suspect it will be many years down the road, but as we have more and more evidence to that effectiveness, we'll, we'll probably see it gravitating in that way. And also just again, for cost effectiveness, even if you look at it from a medical therapeutic standpoint, you know, group therapy is a hell of a lot cheaper than going to a, a solo therapist. But the thing is as well, is that, um, you know, with a sincere faith-based organization where like sanctuary is a community, it's mm -hmm. kind of a, mm -hmm little bit of a commitment to actually join with sanctuary and that's something that yeah people don't really know when like when they come to our sunday services a lot of times because we have uh, public sunday services for our community we're on, we're on our 53rd sunday service i think um, this weekend um but yeah people show up and they're not really sure what to expect they're just wanting to check it out and we've had quite a few people say like this is a little too churchy like community mm -hmm. it's a little too much for me it's a little too much of a commitment feeling so mm -hmm. i can see that pushing people away yeah yeah for sure plenty for sure oh, there'll, there'll, there'll be room for plenty of different modalities um mm -hmm. but it'll be interesting to see how the balance shifts yeah well I, this all comes back to the cultural shift you know we've got a, a population that just has not grown up with this stuff so it's weird mm -hmm. it's alien and 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 really it's much worse for these folks because they you me everybody we know all grew up with the drugs are bad, just say no. And that's all anybody knows. So yeah, yeah I, I think programs like Oregon are, are going to introduce people to something that they haven't really had access to before, even if it's at premium prices. And mm -hmm. I think there will be a good chunk of that population that will, uh, to quote Timothy Leary, turn on, and then they will move into this next phase of things. But yeah, for the rest, it's either not their cup of tea or they wouldn't have partaken anyway. And that's okay too. Right, uh, right. For sure. You know, like Greg said, some people need that sort of, you know, doctor office feel. Uh, I think of my parents, you know, they're, they are those people. They mm -hmm. would only ever respect somebody in the white lab coat with a stethoscope hanging around their, their neck. Until they get on seven grams around the lab coat, guy. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Who's this guy with the stethoscope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I got I, I have some interesting. I've, I've dosed a lot of uh, medical professionals, and uh, it's it's been interesting to see that kind of transition from the desired sterile set and setting to like, oh, sh this is something that needs to be done on the ground. Take me outside. You know, get me outside Please. barefoot kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Uh, that was the big Sasha Shulgin criticism of how science was approaching the study of psychedelics. He, he complained that you're doing this in blank white rooms under a fluorescent light bulb. 
small wonder people aren't enjoying that. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. right. Uh, I, I would love to ask if you all have any thoughts on the Oratory of Mystical Sacraments. This is a church that I've been following for years. They were involved in that New Hampshire case where uh, the Supreme New Hampshire Supreme oh, Court. Oh, yeah, the Matt case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is a church that has been doing mail-order sacrament for a very long time. And it's just kind of baffling to me that this is has been going on for as long as it has. And it's even, like I said, it's been involved in a, uh, a nationally recognized case. And so I don't know. I just, I just always wanted to ask someone in this field what their thoughts are around this this organization and their practices i think eric you might have been the one that told me about this just a few days ago and i haven't had a chance to go check them out and stuff like that i mean mm -hmm. it's just hard to say it's really hard to gauge where the government's putting their focus at at any given time and i say it's probably this there's probably a lot of luck involved right probably a lot of luck that no one's nothing bad has happened but yeah, it's kind of a head scratcher and, you know, it just makes you wonder. And, and I'll say this, there's, there hasn't been just a ton, ton of government interference in the theogenic kind of church space anyways, besides tons of sacraments have been seized, right? Coming across mm -hmm. the border. But very rarely do we ever hear about police like busting down doors in the ceremony, stuff like that, you know? So it's just hard to say, but it's 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 a very interesting case that you bring up in that in that they've been doing mail order, you know. And when I think about the religious exemption, I think about sacred ceremony, you know, in, in a location physically there, and they're doing mail order sacrament. And so, you know, that's very interesting. I'm not here to say that it's not a valid religious exercise. I can tell you that right, right now. You know, it very well could it could be, and, and everyone's sincere and all that. But it, it goes kind of back to both the safety and diversion risk, right? That are these people fit to be taking these substances? And obviously, when you put something in the mail, the diversion risk increases exponentially. So mm -hmm. that would be my take. If I was a go on the government side, I would say huge diversion risk, can't do it, right? So why they're operating this long, you know, I just can't say for sure. I, I, I wish I knew. Yeah, it's just been Ooh. such a head scratcher, like you say, for me. Yeah, and you know what? This this is a perfect uh, callback to where we started because you had, had commented, rightly so, that I am more conservative than Greg. So mm. uh, it sounded a little bit like Greg is okay with the mailing of sacrament. Technically, if you're a, a proper religious group, it, it would theoretically be a protected practice, but I would never recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Because you're already facing a risk with criminal charges just for having the sacrament. Why on earth would you now compound that risk by throwing in a bunch of federal postal charges into the mix? Yikes. Well, I, I've been thinking about it in, ter in terms of diversion. So let's say, for instance, if, we're, if we end up with a church in Oregon and a church in Texas, to me, it makes the most sense in order to to maintain tracking of the sacrament that there is a central location that is producing the sacrament and it is weighing and measuring and logging everything it is sent with a tracking number insured or whatever you know so that it is 100% we know where it is at all times when it gets to the facility it's logged in and every time a dose goes out that's logged as well so you know this is we're, we're hoping and it's it's our intention 
the sanctuary, I mean, it's already a national organization, but it's our intention that we end up with multiple satellites around the country. And so trying to think of what is the safest, smartest, most legal thing to do here that allows kind of the mother church to really keep track of what's going in and make sure what's not, nothing's going out that's not supposed to. So I, I don't know if that makes sense to y'all or what your thoughts yeah. are on that. Yeah. 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 No, you know, like I said, I guess my, my, when I was talking about mainly, it's like, you it, know, I guess theoretically to random people, I mean, they wouldn't be random if they filled out a membership application, they didn't accept stuff like that. You know, they wouldn't technically be random, but like in your scenario, you're sending it to trusted church leaders in another state that have been, you know, with the organization and understand the diversion and the tracking and stuff like that is, is a little bit different scenario for me than, than just randomly sending sacrament out in the, the ether. Yeah, no, I mean, we sincerely want to keep everybody safe and we want to keep all of our mushrooms used just for our specific ceremonial use. And so trying to think of what's the, the, the safest, best way to do that is just something I've been putting a lot of consideration into sure. maybe just before we head out or do you want to say to us something um, yeah well i am i do want to get y'all's thoughts on the organization of plant medicine churches as far as uh, how they're filed so like sanctuary mm. we filed as a 508 c1a um, but a lot of churches in general don't know that that's an option mm. and a lot of them file as a 501 so I'm curious with you all working with entheogenic practitioners and faith-based organizations, how does that come up? Has the 508 uh, question come up much? Yeah. Yeah. So here's how I kind of see the breakdown of the 501 versus the 508. And and look, it's it's fairly well known that if, if you're using Schedule 1 sacraments absent some kind of long lineage and probably a court case, the IRS probably not going to approve you. Uh, for 501c3 status. So as that, most of the people I work with, it's 508c1a. And, and here's the difference when it goes to write-offs, as I kind of understand it, is that you can donate to a 508c1a. It's 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 technically tax-exempt, right? And obviously the church can take it in free of tax. Now, when you start getting into the larger donations, that's when it could potentially draw scrutiny with the IRS, at which point it would be up to the donor to show the IRS that you're indeed operating as a tax exempt church. Now, my understanding is that there's a circuit split. Some circuits just need to show you're operating as a nonprofit church. Some circuits say that you actually have to show that you're operating as a 501c3 church, which has the 13 different factors, you know, that the IRS looks at, but on a constitutional level, they have to have 508c1a because if not, you would essentially have the, it would, it would be an impediment to the free exercise because the IRS would be the arbiter of what's a valid religion for nonprofit purposes, which I understand to be an unconstitutional scheme. Hence why you have 508C1A. So most people I work with, it's mostly ceremony and membership donations, nothing huge and nothing that if someone went to write off that it wouldn't probably go through and no problem. Uh, I usually say 508. Now there's been some organizations I work with who have huge donors lined up. So, and I actually have a third party company I refer them to, to try to put together the 501c3 application. And now the verdict's still out on whether they're going to get approved or not, but that's something also kind of with the importation of sacrament that we need to kind of work out in the future, because there's a lot of money and resources coming into this space, especially with the churches are having big donors step up, willing to give money. And if it comes to the point where it's a burden, because every time they write to a 508c1a, which many won't. 
Most big philanthropists require, because when you do 501c3, you get a predetermined letter and you get a number, right, that you put on your tax return. And that doesn't guarantee it won't get flagged, but it's much more likely to be pushed through, especially the larger donations. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's going to be where it becomes prohibitive to the growth of, of these types of religions, the, the trouble getting 501c3 status, and the IRS might have to get sued. You know, I mean, that's just kind of where it's at right now. And from my perspective, you know, Gary might have a different, but that's kind of how I see the 508, 501 C3 uh, debacle. Yeah, I, I don't get asked very often about the tax stuff. And when I do, there's another lawyer here in town uh, that I know. And all she does is this 501 and 508 work. So I send it to the specialist because this is an area if you goof it up it's disastrous yeah. really expensive so my malpractice insurer really prefers i don't yeah so I don't. <laughs> yeah and, and gary i need to get with you because I, I have some business for her i really do i've got some business for her yeah so she, she's she's fantastic i'm not going to mention her name because i don't have permission yeah. to mention her but yeah, she's yeah, yeah. Really, really fantastic and this is absolutely all she does so okay. uh, yeah for sure a lot of accountants, and there's actually some Secretary of State's office who aren't aware of 508C1A, and you put the language on the state filing, you literally have to call them and point it out to them uh, for them to accept the filing, right? Because I like to put the language in the purpose statement, and yeah, there's just a lot of people that don't know about it. And, you know, the big thing is this, is your free speech rights, right? Because a 501C3 is limited on you know what they can speak about i.e political campaigns is the main one is that you can't get involved and speak out on political campaigns so but 508c1a can and so there's a lot of mainstream religious groups that very much value that ability to do that and will incorporate under 508c1a but by, by the way never mind that there are just a ton of churches out there that don't know that rule <laughs> I can't yeah. believe that yeah, church yeah. town you drive by and they've got their front signs with political statements all over them. So. <laughs> and, and it even relates to the pastor getting up in front of the church and talking about politics. Yeah. If the yeah. IRS finds out, they very well could rip your 501c3 stats, which would have, for some churches, devastating consequences. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sanctuary was initially filed as a 501, and then we had a member who... A lot of people might call him a conspiracy theorist, but he brought up to us, like, do, do you all know about this 508C1A uh, thing? And we were like, dude, stop it <laughs> with all that business. And then we looked into yeah. it and we were like, wait a second, this is legitimate. <laughs> and we found oh, yeah. an organization that helped us do all the filing and they're a yeah. great organization that, yeah, they make sure that we're doing everything right as best they can. They answer all of our questions. But um... and, and I'd like to make a point for the viewers is that your IRS tax status doesn't really have just a whole lot to do with your religious exemption, if anything, right? Like that's mm -hmm. mostly based upon your doctrine, your practices, how you handle substances, how you, you know, get people screened, stuff like that. Whether you get 501c3 or not is, in my opinion, wholly irrelevant, but but pretty much irrelevant to an analysis of whether this is actually a protected church because right. I talk to a lot of people and it's their impression that like when you get 501c3 status, that's it, you know, you're exempt. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's not quite the case. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks. All right, gentlemen, well, we are well over an hour here. I really want to uh, respect your time and very much appreciate your time. If you could, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know if you'd like to take us out on uh, what psilocybin says to you. 
Greg, what's psilocybin yeah, say to okay. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, psilocybin says that everything is in perfect divine order and timing, and it tells me to trust the process. Love it. Wow. Any words of wisdom for us there, Gary? Yeah. Go inward. Yep. Go, go inward. That's where the universe actually exists. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. Thank you both so much. It's been a wonderful and lightning conversation. I'm yeah. certain that this will benefit our listeners. Uh, and uh, look forward to keeping up with all of your work. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Eric. Thank Thanks. you, Jordy. Absolutely. And the beating of the drum.